You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As I was walking, I heard some pops, and I thought they were firecrackers. And I looked over my right shoulder, and I could see the guard, and they were uh, kneeling, and there was uh, smoke coming out of the ends of their guns. I want to begin today by encouraging you to purchase the book of our guest, Surviving a Kent State Memoir by Paula Stone Tucker. She was a witness to the May 4th, 1970 shootings at Kent State University, and we're going to speak with her today on the program. Her book, Surviving a Kent State Memoir, is available from Sunbury Press. It's on Amazon, or you can get it directly at sunburypress.com. I also want to thank Ohio vs. the World podcast. Once again, we found uh, Alex Hastie's program to be very useful. His very first episode that he did on his podcast is about Kent State, which, of course, is in Ohio. Encourage you to listen to that program as they go into even more detail. If you like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics and you want more, Go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com and sign up for the extra podcast. There you're going to find some really great stuff in terms of, I mean, when we did a podcast recently on the 1988 election, and I just have more that couldn't possibly fit into that cast. So go and sign up for that. You also get some extras like links to things and archives of past podcasts and that that aren't out there and and other things so give it a try www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com on april 30th president nixon announces on national television that a massive troop offensive is going to be launched into cambodia tonight american and south vietnamese units will attack the headquarters for the entire communist military operation in South Vietnam. This is not an invasion. Cambodia had been a neutral country in the conflict, at least for what most of the American public knew. Now, it does turn out that the North Vietnamese were using Cambodia as a staging ground, and so to avoid American bombers. Nixon wants to root this out. Nixon's approval rating's not very high at this time. He's going to head into this year, 1970, and lose. His party's going to lose seats. They already don't have control of Congress. They're going to lose seats in a midterm, which is going to embolden his opponents. But for a lot of Americans, anger is the reaction. What really uh, triggered everything was uh, Nixon's announcement that he was 
enlarging the war into Cambodia. And I think that was on April 30th. That's Paula Stone Tucker. She is a retired clinical psychologist who's worked with families, couples, and survivors of trauma and abuse. In her younger days, she was a reporter for the Akron Beacon Journal and the Daily Kent Stater. She grew up in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, and graduated from Kent State University, and she was a witness to the shootings that occurred there in 1970 that we're going to discuss today. Kent State University, it's not the kind of place that you expect uh, huge operations of student demonstrations to be occurring from. I think it had about uh, 20,000, 25,000 students enrolled at that time, and it was a quiet college. Um, there had been some protests. Um, SDS had disrupted things a year before, and uh, there were some protests. You have to remember how frustrating this is because people wanted this war to be over even in, you know, the Chicago now is two years away. They thought maybe there would be peace talks at the tail end of the 68 election, bombing halt, something like that. Nixon does reduce the amount of troops in Vietnam, but seems to be escalating the war. We're going to find out later. Um, this is something that's still not widely talked about. We're going to find out later through Butterfield, who is the same man, Alexander Butterfield, same man who revealed the existence of a taping system that in Butterfield's possession is so-called Zilch Memo, which reveals that Nixon is aware that these bombings are doing zilch militarily. But every time he does the bombing, he secures his polls, particularly with his Republican base. People don't know this now, and opinions very divided on the war. In fact, there's a lot of people who support Nixon's position on all of this. And then you have many who uh, are against it. And you go to Friday, May 1st, and all over the nation... Anywhere that there's students, there's protest, and Kent State is no exception. On Friday at 1 o'clock, there was supposed to be a uh, rally on the front campus. Uh, was called by Steve Sheroff, who is, was a graduate student, and it was a symbolic uh, burying of the Constitution. And I was not there for that. I was um, home that day. I was uh, five months pregnant, and I was only going to school when I needed to. Now, I'm looking at a photo of this event, and they're very sparse and very scattered. It's not, like, huge and menacing. Gather around the victory bell on the Kent State Camp Commons. This is just a small bell that, you know, anyone can reach and ring, and it's encased in a very small brick structure. You'd ring this bell if the football team won a game, as I understand it during this time. There wasn't a lot of ringing for that purpose. A group of history students organize a protest after Nixon's announcement in Cambodia. They ring the bell and get a crowd. This is followed by another rally by the United Black Students at Kent State, who are both protesting the war and calling for more black students to be admitted. This school is not far from Cleveland, where there's a large black population, and there's only about 600 students going. They want 5,000. You know, these rallies are not destructive in any way, not menacing. The month leading up to this weekend was horrible. It was raining. It was cold. It was snowing. This was the first weekend where the weather was nice. It was in the 70s, and people were outside and excited. 
and, you know, wanting to do anything that, that they could find to do. You know, people that had been hunkered down for the whole winter were suddenly set free. Friday night, one of the first warm evenings of the spring, several hundred students gathered in downtown Kent in an area with a number of bars. It's known as the Strip on North Water Street. And there's the spontaneous anti-war rally that begins in the street. Twice while the rally's in progress, passing police cruisers are hit with beer bottles. And then police kind of stay away from the area. People start leaving the bars. This is a Friday night. There's kind of a spontaneous demonstration. Anti-war slogans are being chanted. Crowd is blocking traffic for about an hour. Here's how it's described in Howard Means' book, 67 Shots. Kent State and the End of American Innocence. The barrel fire was roaring by then, and assault on downtown businesses was soon underway. Shoe and jewelry shops and a hardware store all had their front windows busted out. Someone used a fertilizer spreader taken from the hardware store to smash the window of a bank. By 12.30 that night, though, local officials had seen enough. With the thrashing still underway and the street crowd swelling, Kent Mayor Leroy Satram declared a state of emergency and ordered all the bars in the city closed. The subsequent forced exodus onto Water Street added yet another element to the increasingly volatile and growing mob. Finally, at 1 a.m., a 30-person joint force of Kent Police and Portage County deputies began using tear gas to drive the crowd out of the downtown area. Fifteen people would be arrested for various acts. Most were driven to jail by the mayor himself, who ended up behind the wheel of a police cruiser that night. Saturday, May 2nd, the rumors of everything going on are widespread. And what may have just been, or not, a group of unorganized students, maybe drunks, engaged in a collegiate riot with some anti-war overtones. The town officials and eventually state officials are getting rumors that there's radical student elements involved, national organizations involved. A dusk-to-dawn curfew had been imposed on the city of Kent. Students are restricted now on Saturday to the campus, which, again, is a decision that might help keep them out of town if they were to listen to this such curfew, but is also keeping all of them on the campus at one time. There was a uh, march that uh, started at uh, the Music and Speech Building, and uh, uh, students walked around campus collecting people as they went. They went past uh, various dormitories, and it was to end up on the commons. And it started uh, at dusk, and so by the time that we got to the commons, it was uh, almost dark. And uh, what I was uh, quite a ways away from the ROTC building, maybe uh, like a football field away, um, but I was uh, standing there, and I saw somebody uh, run up and toss something onto the roof of the uh, ROTC building. The ROTC building that's on Kent State campus is believed to be the target of students that evening. Now there's about 2,000 marchers swarming the hill, overlooking the commons, and surrounding the ROTC building. 
It's an old wooden World War II barracks. But here's the thing. It makes for a great symbol, but it's scheduled to be demolished. And um, whatever it was, it, it rolled down and fell on the ground. And everybody around me laughed, um, you know, thinking that whoever, whatever they were trying to do, they weren't accomplishing very much. Well, uh, the guy picked up the whatever it was again. It turned out to be like a, uh, um, uh, a Molotov cocktail through it, and it went through one of the windows of the, of the ROTC building. And um, shortly thereafter, the um, curtains in the ROTC building uh, started on fire, and then you could hear some of the uh, ammunition that was stored inside of the building exploding. And so that was the beginning of the incident. There is some mystery as to what actually went on here. Reports are that plainclothes police who are standing nearby don't make an attempt to stop the students. What I saw happening, there was a um, uh, uh, quite a distance between the road where the fire trucks could park and uh, across the end of the commons to reach the the ROTC building. And so they had their hoses stretched across that. And um, what I saw was that they started to, uh, you know, shoot water at the building. And then all of a sudden, they just kind of picked up their hoses and rolled them up and left and found out later that what had happened was that uh, it, it was rumored people had uh, hacked the fire hoses with uh, knives or machetes. It could be that their hoses were slashed. Um, but the blaze does die out, doesn't you know go anywhere else but this old ROTC building. I only saw a few people that were down towards the Rossi building that um, looked like they had any intention of of doing any damage, and really only one person that was, um, you know, throwing things at the building. And uh, so I'd say at on that night it was a very small group of people that were um, out to do any kind of. Uh, vandalism or anything destructive and everyone else was just out uh, celebrating and uh, sure of course there were people who also were upset about what Nixon had done and were in in this march because they were you know demonstrating and asserting their rights shortly after assessing the situation Mayor Satrum alerts the Ohio National Guard and here's what he doesn't do. Inform Kent State University officials. And that's going to bring National Guard units eventually from a Teamster strike that's going on over to the Kent State campus. It's not just Kent State. There's going to be 30 ROTC buildings that would be burned nationwide. This is when the National Guard has set up initially on campus the guard did not show up until late on the night of May 2nd, so that most people had dispersed by that time. And we didn't really know that uh, the guard was there until um, until uh, we came back to My husband and I came back to campus on uh, May 3rd to see what the damage was. Um, you know, right around 11 in the morning. And we saw the, the tanks. We saw the guard. 
You get to Sunday, May 3rd, and it's quiet initially as term in terms of protests. The campus now is fully occupied by Ohio National Guard. Armored personnel carriers are stationed throughout the campus. Students and guardsmen talk. Um, one of the students, Allison Krause, is going to put a flower into one of the M1s of the National Guardsmen. And she's going to say, flowers are better than bullets. The governor of Ohio is James Rhodes. And he's been governor since 62. And he has his eye on the U.S. Senate seat. He's a Republican. That Senate seat's held by Bob Taft. Rhodes is running a law and order campaign to try to unseat him. He's nearly successful. He sees Kent State as an opportunity and goes down there. So he visits Kent and he holds a news conference along with city officials where he claims that the demonstrations in Kent were the handiwork of a highly organized band of revolutionaries who were out to destroy higher education in Ohio. The worst type of people we harbor in America, he says, worse than the brown shirts and the communist element. He definitely made some statements about brown shirts and their actions wouldn't be allowed and characterized, um, uh, you know, students who were simply protesting as um, right wing, right wing protesters. His uh, statements, I would say, inflamed the, the populace, you know, the c- citizens of the town of Kent. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And then he says, we will use whatever force necessary to drive them out of Kent. It's inflammatory as, as much as there's mysteries about what occurs in the next day. One thing is clear. There's no evidence of any outside Ohio influence on these students. Everything that's going to occur is going to be Ohio versus Ohio. So you've got to remember that the National Guard is not nationalized at this time. They don't report to the Pentagon. They report to the state of Ohio. They report to Governor Rhodes. And his speech informs how they're going to act. In fact, at night, a commander would tell his troops that Ohio law gave him the right to shoot if necessary. But they have their orders. They're to disperse any assembly now on campus, restore order. So around 8 p.m., a crowd gathers at the Commons near that victory bell again, and it starts increasing in size. Guard officials now say, look, we're going to enforce a new curfew. You can't be out at all in numbers like this. My husband was there. Uh, my husband worked for the um, for the uh, radio station, and uh, he was there, and it was a similar type of thing. There was another march, uh, but because the National Guard was there, there were helicopters that were overhead. There was tear gas, and um, the the rotor blades from the helicopters beat the tear gas onto the down onto the crowd. Crowd refuses to disperse. 
And at 9 p.m., they read the Ohio Riot Act to them. Now, uh, some of the students were like, well, we can't protest on the campus. Eventually, the crowd ended up on front campus where there's a a gate uh, and uh, a seal. It's kind of symbolic of Kent State. And then students just decide to stay where they are. So they're on the intersection of East Main and Lincoln Streets in Kent, not far from the campus, and demand that the mayor and the KSU president speak with them about the guards' presence on campus. Why are there armed units on their place of education and where they live? They are assured that the man would be met. If they just go back to campus, officials will meet with them and talk. But as soon as they do leave, the guard orders that the curfew would go into effect immediately. They needed to get back to their dormitories. And uh, they they sat down and the guard confronted them there. And in the uh, whatever went on at that time, there were a couple people that were stuck by the guards' bayonets. Tear gas and helicopters with searchlights are going to be a constant presence that night. So when you get to Monday, May 4th, 1970, there's some confusion. State and town officials have met, and some think they've declared martial law. They actually haven't. And as far as Kent State University is concerned, this is a normal day. People that had been gone for the weekend and came back, they really didn't know anything about, uh, you know, what had gone on and uh, whether there was an injunction against uh, uh, going to rallies or anything like that. Uh, You know, this was 1970 and there wasn't any Internet. And, um, you know, they might have heard on the radio that there were uh, was a a fire at Kent State or something like that. But Kent State was a gigantic campus. And, uh, you know, that would have been one building. There are classes. There are final exams going on for some. People have to go. It was uh, business as usual. Everybody was that had classes that morning went to their class. And, um, you know, the, uh, there were uh, classroom buildings on all different sides of the commons. So people would use the commons as a shortcut to walk to their next class or they'd walk on the pathways that were alongside the commons to get to their from one side of the campus to the other. I had a lot of jobs that I had to to work at in order to pay for my tuition. And so one of them was uh, working for the yearbook. And as part of that, I sold uh, yearbooks to people or or took reservations uh, for the yearbooks that would come out later on in the year. And so I was supposed to uh, sit in the library at Taylor Hall and uh, that was the, the building that the guard walked around. And uh, sit in there and take reservations for the yearbook. I was inside the building. The building had, um, you know, heavy windows, heavy doors, and even in spite of all that, I could hear the commons bell ringing. And uh, the commons bell was used to call people to rallies. And the commons bell, bell was right down the hill from Taylor Hall. Um, almost directly below where I was was sitting in the library. So I listened to it for a while. It started about 1130, and finally I couldn't stand it anymore. So I thought, well, I got to go out there and see what's going on. 
And so I walked out one of the doors of uh, Taylor Hall, and there were uh, lots of, of people standing around, uh, kind of milling about right on this sidewalk in front of Taylor Hall that faced the commons. So I stood among them. There were sorority girls I, that were standing there, and I was shocked because in the past there had been kind of a divide between the uh, Greek societies, you know, the fraternities and sororities, and the the hippies or the the, the freaks, as they called them, and uh, so that the sororities and fraternities were uh, not really committed to the anti-war movement, as far as I knew, but these girls were there in their sorority sweaters with their pins on, and they were yelling, uh, you know, these uh, epithets at the guard. Of course, the guard was, you know, across on the other side of the commons, couldn't really hear them. Though there's no official martial law, the National Guard is resolved to disperse any assembly that comes on the commons. And so when noon approaches and the size of the crowd increases to 1,500, some of them are just watching. Others are specifically protesters protesting now both Cambodia and the National Guard on their campus. You might picture it this way if you're on an airplane above. You've got a large building, modern for its time, Taylor Hall, which you could say is upper left. Behind it is that bell we discussed. It's down a slightly down an incline. In front of Taylor Hall is a lawn, a few trees, some paths, a very normal type college campus. Next to Taylor Hall is Prentice Hall. In front of that is a parking lot. And in front of that parking lot is a practice field with some fencing. I was uh, still standing right in front of Taylor Hall at the top of the hill, and um, the uh, guard had come uh, across the commons in a jeep, um, and there was uh, somebody standing in the jeep with a bullhorn, and they were yelling something. I, I, I couldn't tell what they were yelling. I couldn't hear it, but uh, later on found out that they were telling people to disperse. Um, so. Nobody left. Everybody stayed there. And um, there were, uh, you know, people on the hill, which is, was called Blanket Hill, uh, between Taylor Hall and the Commons. And the eventually the Jeep came back and, um, uh, you know, got close enough to them to yell through the bullhorn. And then some of the... Um, the National Guard, uh, five or six of them, started marching across the commons and stopped and fired tear gas into the crowd. And so that was the tear gas that I got in my eyes. It At first, it uh, didn't go off, and somebody picked up a canister and threw it back, and everybody in the crowd laughed, and, um, and then they eventually got the tear gas to uh, whatever, disperse, and it um, flowed up the hill, and that was the tear gas that I got in my eyes, and I'd never been tear gas before, so it hurt, it burned, and I ran into the building and tried to wash my eyes out in the bathroom. The National Guard intend to clear the commons of this assembly. They march up, past the Victory Bell, up the hill, then past the Taylor Hall, they intend to circle. The National Guard sweeps towards the practice field 
throwing tear gas canisters. Rocks are being thrown at them. In some cases, they're throwing rocks back. And by the time that I uh, came back out, the crowd was gone. And I wasn't really sure where they'd gone, so I kind of walked down to the end of the building and looked. And as I looked up the hill towards what's called the pagoda, um, I uh, saw the last of the uh, demonstrators going over the hill. So I figured, oh, everybody went over to the other side of Taylor Hall. Um, And if you don't mind, if I could just ask you, your feelings at the time, how much of this is the journalist? How much is this is the anti-war protester or or anti-war sympathizer? And how much of this is, hey, I'm just... I'm just on college today and something's going on and I, I need right. to see. Well, it was, say, uh, 90% of the latter. Uh, it was, mm. uh, wow, there, what's going on? This is crazy. I've never seen anything like this before. And isn't this a great time? Um, we're out here. We're protesting. And I wasn't really protesting. I was five months pregnant at the time. And I was just kind of you know, watching to see what would happen. And uh, so that uh, that was uh, my main mindset was, um, oh, this is kind of like a picnic, like a, a carnival um, atmosphere, like a panty raid. And then a small part of it was the journalism training of, oh, let's watch what's going on here. And I've heard um, I've heard other accounts like that, 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 that the it's like there was a, a small portion of National Guard compared to the amount of students, let's say, at least initially before the tear gas, and a lot of dispersed after the tear gas. And so there was this kind of like, didn't seem like the type of atmosphere where something else was going to right, happen. Right, right. I thought uh, when they hit the chain link fence and they turned around and came back, they stopped in the middle of the field and kind of stood there and when they reach the practice field, there's an agreement on this. They lower and aim at the students. They're aiming their weapons. Some of the students, you know, do have some experience with hunting or the military, and they describe this as an extremely unusual action. I did see, you know, a couple people, kneel, a couple guardsmen kneel down and, and aim their rifles. Uh, but I didn't think anything of that because I had seen them do things like that you know, over the weekend. And they remain in this position on the practice field, this kind of military position for about 10 minutes. But they're up against a fence and a parking lot where there's a lot of cars. It's not going to make for marching. So they turn and go back from whence they came, back towards Taylor Hall, with students jeering, chanting, throwing rocks. There's dispute about the rocks, by the way, the size of the stones. Some say they were very small. These officers had helmets. They had they had masks, so... They couldn't be affected by the tear gas. And so um, then they got up and they uh, started walking back towards the uh, Taylor Hall and they went up the hill beside Taylor Hall. And so I went up the hill and uh, when I got to the top of the hill, I saw that the the guard had uh, marched onto the practice football field and at the edge of this field, there's a chain link, chain link fence. And so um, I knew that they weren't going to be able to 
keep going once they got to the fence. They were going to have to turn around and come back. So I was kept walking down the hill towards the parking lot. But a group of soldiers reached the front of Taylor Hall near a pagoda statue. Ironically, this is a the temple of peace, the sacred temple. They turn 180 degrees. They aim their weapons once again at the students they can see. I thought it was over. And so I was about, uh, at that point, I was... Uh, kind of parallel to where the uh, metal sculpture was. And uh, the metal sculpture is uh, the about 100 yards away from the guard where um, um, uh, John Cleary was shot. But, of course, nothing had happened at that time, and I just kept on walking. And as I was walking, I heard some pops, and I thought they were firecrackers. And I looked over my right shoulder, and I could see the guard, and they were uh, kneeling, and there was uh, smoke coming out of the ends of their guns. So I had a dress on, and where I was was all dirt and grass and sticks and stones, and I thought, well, gee, I, those, those have got to be blanks. Um, Maybe they're not. Maybe I should lay down. And so I didn't want to lay down on the dirt. So I walked over to a set of stairs that uh, went up to Taylor Hall, and I lay down there. And so the, in the pictures, uh, that's where I am. And, and you can see me standing up after the shooting is, has stopped. So by the time I got to the stairs, it, the shooting was almost over. It's so quick. 13 seconds, 67 shots. I, I stood up, and I was uh, closest to uh, where Jeffrey Miller lay. And I saw him laying on the ground, and I thought, oh, he tripped. You know, oh, he hit his head because there was a little trickle of blood coming out um, from the side of his head. I looked around, and I could see there were other people laying on the ground. And I just thought, well, well, this is weird. How could so many people trip? And uh, so I started counting, and I counted. I counted maybe four, and then I would get up to five or six, and I'd think, well, this can't be right. There, Not that many people would have tripped, and I'd restart, count again, and by that time, somebody had come over and uh, flipped Jeffrey Miller over, and I could see that his face was shot away for the most part, half of his face, and I was like, oh my God, they're, they're bullets. They were using bullets, and so then I, I started you know, counting again, and I could see, I could see where John Cleary was. He was uh, circled by a group of students, and there were other students who kind of sprang into action. It's a classic photograph, which is showing a woman screaming next to the body of Miller. Her agony is caught. It turns out she's a 14-year-old young woman who has run away from home. The photo is going to end up winning a Pulitzer Prize for a photojournalism student. A lot of these events happen right in front of a journalism 
building. Sandra Schur and William Schroeder are merely going to classes, and they're shot. They're having no part in the protest. Uh, Schroeder, though he's against the war, is is there on an ROTC scholarship. Alison Krauss is the woman that some time ago we mentioned had put a flower into the M1 barrel of a National Guardsman. Shot. Is dissent a crime? A World War II veteran, father of Alison Krauss. Have we come to such a state in this country that a young girl has to be shot because she disagrees deeply with the actions of her government? Adine Keller was interviewed in the Ohio vs. the World podcast, which I highly recommend. They were jumping on the ground, covering my head, hoping I wouldn't get hit. Then I realized that all these bullets were hitting the ground around me, and I'm wondering, why are they shooting at me? I haven't done anything. I'm almost 100 yards away from these people. And uh, the bullets were actually, I could hear them going right into the ground. And then I thought, oh, God, this isn't good. And then all of a sudden I got hit. And it felt like a bee sting. Uh, It burnt. And I didn't roll over and flail and flop around like you see in Hollywood. I mean, it was less like, it was almost instantaneous. I knew exactly what had happened to me. Um, At first, I... There was, to me, it seemed like there was a dead silence after the shooting. And as people slowly stood up and realized what was going on, then uh, some people started screaming and other people just kind of sprang into action and kind of uh, circled around people that were injured so that uh, to, you know, give them air was the idea. And, you know, don't. Don't lean over them and and make things worse. A call for, for desperate call for help. There are no National Guard medics to treat any of the wounded. They have to call for ambulances. Students are trying to help students. You you're a, a psychologist um, and uh, you help people with trauma now. Does the fact that um, you happen to have turned out to have participated or been there for a historic event. Does it change the level of trauma that you experience? So does it change it at all? Or is it still just kind of a very traumatic event for you? Well, it was a traumatic event. Um, but uh, there's research on uh, what... Um, what are the most damaging parts of being a traumatic event? And uh, one of the things that lessens it is if it's if you don't personalize it. Uh, if you don't, if it's not somebody shooting at you because they mean to kill you. And uh, so, in my mind, I always thought. Gee, uh, my my husband told me not to go, and I went anyway. And um, you know, I was here by accident, and it was a mistake that I was here. So that I think lessened the impact of the event, and it, it wasn't uh, something that was a lifelong devastation for me. Uh, other things are, you know, being trapped for a long period of time, and this was just. Uh, you know, a matter of, of moments, and then having something happen to you repeatedly, those are the, the kind of the aspects of um, uh, trauma that can be very damaging. And so this was not repeated either. 
these students who are shot, you take like Sandra Schuer, were not right in front of the soldiers. She's 130 yards away. Donald Scott McKenzie was nearly two football fields away when he shot. He's observing, mostly. John Cleary, a freshman at the time of the shootings, was taking pictures of the protest, and he shot in the chest. Alan Kenfora was slightly injured. His roommate, Thomas Grace, is going to lose part of his left foot and continue to walk with a limp. Here's what Joseph Lewis says. I think the most dramatic second was after the sound of the 13 seconds of gunfire stopped. There was a moment in time, just a second or a millisecond, when there was absolute silence. And then around me, I heard wailing and screaming and lots of commotion. The moment of silence after the gunfire stopped and before the student's reaction was a very dramatic pause. Alan Canfora, I remember it very clearly. If you go through something like that, you can't forget it. I was shot. I was stunned. It seemed like a bad dream. People were screaming out. People were calling for ambulances. And the National Guard is not finished. They plan to continue to clear out more students that are assembling and watching. It takes some of the peace marshals, faculty members that were respected by the students, who, after consulting with the National Guard and finding that they're not backing down, even after the shooting, to get them to disperse. The public address system finally barks. By order of President White, the university is closed. Students should pack their things and leave the campus as quickly as possible. County prosecutor obtains an injunction closing the university indefinitely. It's going to be closed until the summer session. We don't know why these guards have been fired. I mean, there's been countless investigations. It took too long to really investigate things deeply. Um, student accounts are that the National Guard had no reason. Some guardsmen claim that they fired out of fear for their lives. Sergeant Lloyd Thomas said there was a real possibility that I could be injured. He said he fired strictly to issue a scare tactic, like showing power with a big noise. Staff Sergeant Barry Morris said the students were bent on overtaking us. I was scared to death. So we don't get a lot of opinion from those who were guardsmen at the time because for the next 10 years or so, they were wrapped up in litigation and also under strict orders not to talk. But since then, there have been guardsmen who have submitted to interviews who have made comments um, some have spoken anonymously the kent latest the kent state library project has interviews from a few of them lacking time for proper permissions i can't run them uh, for you but i do have some summaries based on listening to some of the guardsmen's accounts uh, i think largely they were there to do a job to follow instructions as best they could there were people who were factory workers, farmers, teachers. Some of them were even Kent State students who also were in the National Guard. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, 
an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. They report being ill-equipped, gas masks from the Korean War, World War II, uniforms that didn't always match. It depended what platoon you were in. They were tired. Their training really varied. Some of them were very well trained. Some of them received training so that they would be ready to go to Vietnam. Others were, you know, joining the National Guard mostly to get out of Vietnam service and weren't adequately trained. Even those that were trained were trained more for things like guarding buildings if there was a riot or something like that. Not so much for actually quelling a disturbance and certainly not for operating on a college campus. That being said, yeah, it appears some of the guardsmen were bitter about what the students were doing about the demonstrations, about the statements they were making, certainly about being jeered because they were wearing green. However, you know, others report that there really was no let's get the mentality. They were mostly there to do a job and they're under very strict instructions. And one thing that I don't think is is made clear, one Guard member described the pressure that Ohio National Guard people were under, uh, especially those that are in the Guard to, say, get out of Vietnam, Right. In a lot of cases, uh, there are also other reasons to join, to pay for school, earn some money. It's tremendous pressure. Five unsats, okay, and these are like demerits. You can get them for long hair. You can get them for being late to your drill. You can get them for missing your uniform. Five unsats would get you out of the Ohio National Guard and automatically entered into the Army. And guess what else? Because these Ohio National Guard units, many of them already had their jungle training. They were already trained. They would go right to Vietnam and right to combat. So as you can imagine, they were under strict pressure to do their job and to follow orders. They weren't there to make individual decisions. I also think that more than the than is the case with other observers at Kent State, the students, the faculty, National Guardsmen, at least at the time they arrived with the information that they had. Many of them are coming right from a Teamster strike. This Teamster strike, by the way, is is violent. Um, there's people with guns and there's disturbances they have to quell. They're also outnumbered and scared kind of in that situation. And uh, that's not something that's widely talked about with Kent State. They arrive on this scene. They're being told that there are, and they feel that there are agitators who are older, who aren't uh, Kent State students. They also feel that there's the possibility that they could be, say, overrun. There's thousands of students. They feel that there's nearby construction sites. There could be debris, that it's not just rocks that could be thrown, but concrete blocks and things like that. So we don't know the reasons for the actual firing i one of the guardsmen's statements refers to the fact that there need not be an order there probably wasn't an order that when they heard one shot that was enough for others to fire to cover that one rifle. so if one person shoots perhaps for a warning 
press because they saw something, heard something. Another group that can fire that doesn't have any guardsmen in front of them are going to fire as well. It's something that lacks historical investigation because of the controversy around it. And so we have to use that phrase that everyone hates, right? (laughs) We'll never know. We'll never quite know. I do get the sense that it's some mix of things, Um, mix of confusion, some fear, and also frustration and being mad at the students. Here's what one of the Sergeant Schaefer is the only guardsman to admit firing intentionally at any individual. He says he saw Joseph Lewis with one hand behind his back and the other with a middle finger. I felt not knowing if this person was going to inflict harm on us or myself. I had to use what abilities I had to stop this person. I fired at him. Lewis's opinion of this, I was standing still. I was giving him the finger. I was 18 and arrogant and foolish, and I was shot. At least six guardmen later told the FBI that the lives of the members of the guard were not in danger and it was not a shooting situation. You know, this is becoming a very important question in all law enforcement cases where deadly force is used and you have very often, oh, I felt I was threatened. They're going to say initially that there was a sniper. It was investigated. I think that... uh the investigators ran up against a stone wall and an agreement among the guardsmen to present their side in a uh, specific way that made them seem blameless. And uh, so that, first of all, um, back in the 70s, you could not sue the state. And so uh, that was a pro- that was a problem. Uh, but there was the Scranton Commission that um, met in uh, the summer of 1970 and issued a report, and uh, they certainly called the um, the shootings unnecessary and unwarranted and inexcusable. But the state uh, took no action on that, and uh, there was a trial in. The resolution of, of the trials was eventually in uh, 1979. The guard issued a statement acknowledging that it had happened, but they made a point of noting that it was not an apology for what they had done. So there certainly, uh, even today, is a dispute about was there blame on the part of the guard, on the part of the uh, the uh, college administration or of uh, the state of Ohio, um, you know, so that's one side of it. People say, yeah, there was blame there. And then there's, it's still uh, divisive. People say, well, it was the fault of the students. They should not have been protesting. So I don't think there's ever been a resolution of that. And uh, there's still questions today about, um, you know, what, actually happened? Why did it happen? You know, did the guard plan this in advance? Did uh, Governor Rhodes um, escalate things with his statements in an attempt to win the primary? Were the students' rights violated, uh, their First Amendment rights? It certainly helps enlarge the cause of the anti-Vietnam War movement. Yet, uh, according to at least one of the National Guardsmen on the scene, he insists that this made them 
very less likely to use the National Guard in the future, um, that it had a, a cautionary tale about using the National Guard. All the people in the story, Rhodes is going to be elected and reelected governor. He's going to serve all the way till 82. People generally are not, you know, how we feel today about Kent State is not how people even in the area felt. And 11 days after the events at Kent State in Jackson, Mississippi, students at Jackson State are protesting on Lynch Street in that town. It's named after a congressman from the Reconstruction, also an author, historian. When there are protests there and police fire 100 rounds of bullets, actually last longer, about 30 seconds of fire and include shotgun fire. Two students are killed, 12 are wounded. There were no arrests in connection to the deaths of Jackson State, just like at Kent State. The President's Commission on Campus Unrest said that the 28-second fusillade from police officers was an unreasonable, unjustified overreaction. To this day, the university has renamed the area Gibbs Green Plaza after the two people, Philip Lafayette Gibbs and James Earl Green, that were killed. Now, Paula Stone Tucker's book is not just about Kent State. And again, I want to urge you, it's called Surviving a Kent State Memoir. It's really the reason that I wrote the book uh, was uh, to describe all of the uh, challenges that I faced and uh, to um, let people know that that uh, you can overcome significant challenges. And so the hope was that people that were in uh, abusive relationships or that had uh, financial devastation or, uh, you know, uh, other types of problems uh, could relate to this and maybe see a way through for themselves. It's available from Sunbury Press, www.sunburypress.com. It's also on Amazon. And, you know, you can learn from history by reading, say, another book about Lincoln, another book about Churchill, right? But another way to learn about history is from people who were there who lived their ordinary life or in the fact of uh, Paula Stone Tucker, a kind of extraordinary life and a challenging one and talks about beating those challenges, which I, I, I think would be rough for any of us. I did want to mention the cover of the book, and that, that's a, uh, another photograph by John Philo. Uh, John Philo was a, a fellow student at Kent State, and uh, he's now vice president of uh, photography for CBS. And uh, he's the person that took the famous photo of Mary Vecchio uh, screaming over the body of Jeffrey Miller. And so this was just another one of his photos, and he allowed me to use it on the cover, for which I'm very grateful. If you really want to get a sense of what it was like then, I think it's a good book to read. Do we have the capacity to even understand the 1960s and the early 1970s, to understand the Vietnam War era? We're getting farther and farther away from it, and I hope that it's not just the costumes and the music that we remember 
it might be hard for them to understand uh, what was going on then, but I think there are great uh, parallels to, to um, today mm -hmm. and what's happened with the government. Uh, so they would, in, I think they would be able to re relate from the standpoint of um, how they feel about the government now, and that was very similar to um, what things were like in 1969-1970. I want to thank you for listening, and uh, there's much more to be had on the extra podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.